Now, I have a friend. Uh, he's actually a professor of mine in grad school, this fellow. He's also a pastor. So like many pastors, he officiates the occasional wedding. It's part and parcel of the job. But not before he takes the couple through what is often called premarital counseling. I'm sure most, if not all of you guys who got married went through something like that. And his methodology is, is as appropriate as it is hilarious. Uh, in his own words, his approach is to attempt to, quote, talk the couple out of it. And uh, he does this by identifying each and every topic that they desperately hope to avoid and talk about those things only. Um, which sounds funny, but if you've been married for any length of time, you can deduce why this is actually a really worthwhile approach to premarital counseling. Because, good grief, you, as a broken human being, are about to enter into a lifelong covenant relationship with another broken human being. You are unifying two disparate life trajectories into a singular but also plural, unique, weirdly shared, yet still distinct, but parallel sort of life trajectory, parentheses S. Um, so you will do damage to one another, you will fail, you will stumble, you will scramble, you will expose one another's immaturity and shortcomings and sin, and you could even land like an endlessly complicated weirdo and actually have a really rough go of it. Just ask Abby all about that. So this friend of mine, he would rather dispense with all this, you know, like, are you ready for the beautiful journey? And get right to the, you know, do you have any idea what you are getting yourself into? You know, and freak them out. Now, uh, as a pastor, another role of his, which is very similar to premarital counseling, is to entertain conversations with people who would like to be baptized. And he approaches that the exact same way. And if you ask him why, he'll say because he adopted that methodology from Jesus of Nazareth. So with that in mind, let's get into the Bible. Uh, turn to Exodus chapter 19. Um, if you're new to the Bible, it's actually the second book in. You're in luck. Genesis and then Exodus chapter 19. Now a word of warning actually, we're gonna do a good bit of Bible on the front end tonight, so keep your book or your app open and bear with me, we're heading somewhere important. Um, many people inside and outside the Christian tradition are familiar with the story of Exodus. There are several movies about it, and heck, one of them even features the voice acting of Jeff Goldblum, one of the greatest actors in the world. Um, is he up there? Yeah, okay, that was important to me. Um, and in that story, the Exodus story, not Jurassic Park, in, in the Exodus story, God's people, or the tribe of Israel, are enslaved by a tyrant called Pharaoh. You know the story, there's a series of miraculous and horrifying events that eventually conclude with God's people being rescued out of slavery. Um, the sea opens up, it's a whole thing. Check it out sometime on your own time. And as I've mentioned already, this is often referred to as the Exodus story, but really, all that Prince of Egypt stuff concludes by the end of chapter 18, and the book of Exodus just keeps on going. In fact, chapters 20 through 40, the second half of the book, is all about Yahweh, the creator God, giving to Moses the Ten Commandments, as well as these infinitely detailed instructions for building this special place to house God's presence called the tabernacle. Now, what links these two acts together is Exodus chapter 19. It's sort of a hinge in between the two big halves. So let's read Exodus 19, beginning with the very first verse. It says this, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. 
After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. In chapter 19, this tribe of Israel are out in the wilderness. They're camping at the foot of this mountain called Sinai. And God's presence comes over the mountain in the form of this violent storm. And this is actually really important. If you know the story of the Bible, it begins in this beautiful garden in which God's presence is actively accessible for the human beings that are in the garden. But if you know the story, humans rebel against God. Their relationship with God becomes fractured. And as a result, they forfeit access to God's presence. But, of course, the story goes on and God promises, in particular, to a man called Abraham that through Abraham's descendants, God will restore the good way things used to be in the beginning, including access to God's presence. Now, in Exodus 19, here are God's people. They've seen all kinds of signs and wonders performed by God. They've been rescued out of slavery by God. And now God's presence has appeared over Mount Sinai as God himself is inviting Israel into a unique and dynamic covenant relationship with him. God actually presents his people with a set of commands, and if Israel follows these commands faithfully, they will become a people who represent God to the whole world. And the commands are actually part of the covenant. They provide for Israel a guide to understanding how life within that covenant will be carried out. And again, these are the people who experience firsthand God's goodness and his power. Uh, they saw the, you know, the ocean open up and everything, so they're thinking, duh, we'll, we'll agree to the terms of the covenant. It makes perfect sense. They say, we we will do everything the Lord has said. And as the story goes on, God invites Israel up the mountain to engage in his presence, which remember is like this violent storm at the time, but they won't go. They're like, ah, it's a little scary. We're gonna hang out right down here. So Moses goes up by himself and he comes down the mountain with God's commands and his instructions in hand to give to the people. Now keep that in mind and turn over just two books to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 26. Every time I try to say Deuteronomy, it comes out sounding like Deuteronomy, 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 Deuteronomy. I had a friend who called people that. You like that one? Do you use it from time to time? Occasionally? Yeah, keep it up. Someone's got to. Deuteronomy chapter 26. Now the story of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, goes on. Israel wanders around in the desert for quite a spell. They're breaking all the commands. And they eventually arrive at the land that God promised to them. But before they go in, Moses gets up before the people and he gives them this big speech. It's kind of like his departing words to Israel before his imminent death. Spoiler alert, he dies. And that speech is the book of Deuteronomy, the last of the five books of the Torah. And the speech begins... 
kind of like a bummer. Moses is harping on Israel's many years of failure to uphold the commandments that he had brought down the mountain himself. And then Moses challenges this new generation, it's been a long time, of Israelites to live differently. Do not embody the previous failures of the previous generations. To be different, Moses says, you only need to respond to God's goodness and grace with love and with faithful obedience. That's really big to God. And Moses repeats the call to obedience that he originally offered at Mount Sinai. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 26, beginning with verse 16. It says, Yahweh God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. Carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared this day that Yahweh is your God and you will walk in obedience to him, that you will keep his decrees, commands, and laws, that you will listen to him. And Yahweh has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession, as he promised, and that you are to keep all his commands. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame, and honor high above all the nations he has made, and that you will be a holy people to Yahweh God as he promised. And Moses actually concludes this speech with a word of warning. Just turn over a couple of pages to chapter 30, Deuteronomy 30, and let's read beginning with verse 15. It says, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your hearts turn away and you are not obedient, if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you see, we kind of have something of a motif going. There's an act of redemption, God rescues, then there's a covenant that gets instated or renewed, and then there's a call to obedience. Okay, I've done this for you, here's the covenant, now live this way, and it concludes with a word of warning, because here are the stakes. And this motif actually surfaces a few times further throughout the Old Testament again and again and again. Now, turn in your Bibles to the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five. You guys all right? Still with me? Great, thank you. Last week we talked about the way that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the thing that we've been going through for the last few months, can be broken up into several sections. It begins with an introduction, which is also a giving of blessings, what we often call the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, and on down the list. Next is a call to Jesus' disciples. The call is, you are the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth. And then Jesus comments on the law and the prophets, what we call the Old Testament, saying he's not come to throw those out, he didn't come to abolish them, he came to fulfill them. And he explains exactly how he plans to do that using 14 teachings directly from the law and the prophets. So those are the teachings that begin with Jesus saying, you have heard it said, and then he quotes the Old Testament, and then he offers his fulfillment or his interpretation saying, but I tell you, 
Then we have last week's text, which is kind of the other end of the bookend of the sermon, a comment on the law and the prophets. And everything that comes after that text is something of an outro, but we'll get there in just a minute. Before all that, before the intro, before the blessings, before the law and the prophets and the 14 teachings, you actually have two sentences of narrative set up from Matthew, the author, for the Sermon on the Mount. So look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. This is really important. It says... Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, don't think for a moment that this is arbitrary or coincidental. Jesus climbs the mountain. He receives from God a set of commands, a series of commandments for his people, Um, And that's what we've been talking about these past few months in the Sermon on the Mount. And then he unpacks those commands and he begins to outro his sermon. Turn over to Matthew chapter seven. Let's pick up where we left off last week. Matthew chapter seven. You guys made it. That's all the Bible turning that I'll make you do. Thank you very much. Um, Chapter seven, verse 13. Tonight's text, Jesus says this. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, obviously, there's a lot here, but the first thing I want you to notice is that this is a call to obedience. In his his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, scholar Scott McKnight says it like this. When Jesus climbs the mountain of this sermon, assumes the posture of a teacher and lawgiver, issues forth his kingdom demands in ways that develop what Moses has taught, and then summons his followers to kingdom obedience at the end, only to descend the mount, we are obligated to see him taking the posture of the final prophet, the Messiah. The sermon is that serious. This is the Messiah's revelation of God's will. He swallows up each demand in the sermon in this final section and says to his disciples, do this. Ever the lover of metaphors and parabolic imagery, Jesus gives this comprehensive call to obedience and he does it with a really stark image and the image is of two roads. And this too is directly out of Deuteronomy. Whereas Moses sets before Israel, if you remember, blessing and curse, life and death, Jesus sets before his disciples two roads. And just as with Moses, the options are life and death. In the city of Jerusalem, there were actually many roads that began with a gate. Jesus is not just making up a new concept here. That image would have been totally familiar to Jesus' audience. Some of these gates were wide enough to accommodate many people at once so that if you were kind of just walking with the flow of crowded foot traffic, the gate and the road are neither here nor there. You just go on through. You don't even have to think about it. Really easy. But other gates were really small or more treacherously place so that one might only reach them with careful hiking or climbing and once you got there you could only enter carefully and thoughtfully one at a time and really deliberately which is not so easy so Jesus is presenting a simple stark familiar picture the go with the flow route leads to death the careful complicated difficult route leads to life And this is doubly interesting given that in the Gospels, the authors tend to draw distinctions between those who hear Jesus and those who actually listen 
to Jesus, meaning there were lots of folks who were exposed to Jesus' teachings. It always talks about how were there crowds of up to thousands of people at a time. They heard his controversial ideas. Maybe they even followed him around for a while to listen to more of what he had to say. They, they paid attention. But then there were others who listened to what Jesus said and decided to become his apprentices. They were involved in active obedience. They were learning to obey what Jesus taught. And the gospel authors actually place them into two really broad categories. There are the disciples, meaning those who are trying to learn to obey Jesus, and then there are the crowds, everyone else who's just around when he talks. So he's saying, Jesus is saying, listen, be a disciple or be in the crowds. And that choice is up to you. It's before you as two roads. On one side is the first road set beyond a great, glamorous, accommodating gate. The way is wide, the terrain is flat and even, it's covered in soft green grass, the sky is bright and blue and cloudless overhead. But there's this woodly, you know, this uh, homely wooden sign fixed to the outer uh, path uh, marking the way in and on its gnarled weathered surface is fixed a single word and that word is destruction. But on the other side, the second road is nothing like the first. It's unfolding before this tiny, dangerous looking gate. The way is tight and winding. There's overgrown thorns and brambles that are lining both sides. There's a canopy of leafless branches enclosing overhead like a tapestry of splintering bones. It's dark and frightening and set before it is a sign not unlike the first in appearance but written across it is a different word, and that word is life. The call to obedience is to take the second road, to enter through the small gate. And that Greek word translated here as enter is actually kame, and it means just that, to go in. It really couldn't be more simple. Jesus actually uses this word several times as a call to action for his disciples regarding this new way of life called the kingdom of God. Jesus also is always talking about entering the kingdom, and he does this as a command. Enter into the life of the kingdom, in the here and now, not just later. Everything Jesus has taught, do this, and you will enter into life in the kingdom today, not later, now. But why are there two components to the image? You know, why roads and gates? Isn't the road thing enough? Why do we enter through a gate? What is the gate? Everything seems to hinge on the gate. <laughs> what, what do you think, Katie? This Katie? Yeah, she was like, it's gonna be good. She left a note on this teaching. She said, that part's gonna be great. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Some scholars argue that the gate may be all the commands that have preceded, preceded this moment in the Sermon on the Mount. So how do you enter into the kingdom? By living according to Jesus' teachings. And maybe there's some truth in that, but most scholars argue that while one dimension of the gate's meaning is, pro meaning is probably the commands, Jesus himself is the gate. Meaning the only way you can possibly embark on this way of life in the first place is by going through Jesus. And in either event, it's obvious enough that the way forward will be difficult. It's narrow, the gate is small, and really we need to hear this. You need to understand that following Jesus will not be easy or comfortable or safe all the time. You know, the church is often quite bad at this disclaimer. We sometimes, either intentionally or unintentionally, present this invitation to follow Jesus as one beautifully void of hardship. Because there are so many beautiful dimensions of what it means to follow Jesus that we tend to focus on those and not without good reason. Or if we do concede that times get tough, we'll say that, yeah, times get tough, but it's not 
necessarily the way of Jesus. It's simply because things outside the way of Jesus or what Christians like to call the world will come against you. And that's true, that does happen. But the way of Jesus itself is very hard. Um, when I was a kid, I was diagnosed by several professionals with attention deficit disorder. Me, but uh, even as a grade school student, I rejected that label with extreme prejudice because it felt to me like a cliche, you know? Something I learned back in our work with the Enneagram, if you were around back then, this is this ancient tool for spiritual formation, is that someone who is a, a number four on the Enneagram, like myself, often manifests their brokenness with a felt need to be unique. So it's often the case that if you tell a number four you belong to a group, they'll say, no, I don't, just like that. But man, dang, if it isn't true, I got the ADD, man. It's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it seems to me a very real thing. I'm not a neuroscientist or anything, but I often struggle with a normal ability to focus on anything that does not interest me profoundly. And this means that I'm sort of swimming upstream just to pay attention a little bit. I'm going against the wiring of my own brain. And it's hard, you know, but what choice do I have? Never pay attention to anything that doesn't enamor me? That's silly. That's a sad, selfish way to live. And really, that's a bit like the way of Jesus. You, you're not simply choosing a beautiful and glorious way of life. You are, but it comes at a price. And that price is a narrow gate and a difficult road. And to walk the road, you have to come against yourself. Something we've said again and again in our conversations around the practices, the spiritual disciplines, and spiritual formation is that Christ-likeness is not natural. You have to work at it. Yes, you have God's empowering spirit alive in you to do the heavy lifting, and he will, but you have to work. You have to practice, you have to obey and submit, and all of this against what often comes natural, which is the wide gate and the broad road. That's the natural way to go, which seems terribly intimidating. So much so that Dietrich Bonhoeffer realized there were indeed ways to make the narrow road an impossibility. He wrote this, as long as I recognize this, road, recognize this road as the one I'm commanded to walk and try to walk it in fear of myself, it is truly impossible. But if I see Jesus Christ walking ahead of me, step by step, if I look only at him and follow him step by step, then I will be protected on this path. Of course, even so, it is a difficult road. And as such, in Jesus' own words, few find it. Now, uh, ever the pessimist, I read this as a bummer, you know, about how many, to use Jesus' own words, choose death and how few choose life. But interestingly, elsewhere, Jesus uses the word many to describe the number of people who will enter the kingdom. Even in this gospel, look at these examples. Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Later, he'll say the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And again, talking about his atoning work on the cross, Jesus says in Matthew 26, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is not offering like a kind of literal measurement with these words, many and few. He's making different emphasis contingent on the respective context, meaning in some sense, many find life, but in another sense, very few do. In fact, G Luke's gospel 
has this same quotation, but it features an even more sobering setup. Look at this. Someone asked him, Jesus, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. This is why the stakes are so high. There are two choices, Jesus or not. And when I say Jesus, I'm not talking about some kind of magical prayer incantation that you say at one point in your life. And I'm not talking about intellectual belief in God or in the idea that the Bible is like a reasonable set of guidelines for life. None of those things. What I am talking about is that there is a reason that this warning acts as an outro to the Sermon on the Mount. The road of life, the choice of Jesus, is to live according to everything said in the sermon. Jesus has brought down the commands of God, just like Moses, and he is saying again, do this, just as Moses said to Israel in Deuteronomy, choose life. I am setting before you two roads, life and death. Choose me, choose the narrow road, choose life. Scholar Dale Bruner says this of that choice. Jesus warns that his sermon is not an intellectual option, a set of suggestions we may take or leave, one philosophy of life among others. No, this teaching makes explicit that Jesus believes his person and teaching are the exclusive way to life. And what we need to understand about this is that, and please listen to me, one road leads to life and one road leads to death. This is not a fear tactic. It's not a question of reward or punishment. I'm not talking about like heaven and hell or afterlife or anything like that. This is simple cause and effect. Um, here's uh, an analogy from life. You know, I've worked as a pastor for a few years now, and you wind up walking with people through their mistakes, and people end up doing the same for you. But uh, a few years back, I sat down with someone who had been caught in an affair, and their marriage and their family and their life were sort of crumbling around them as a result. And myself and some other folks in their life said, look, here's where we start. We outlined a plan to sever ties with this other person, get into therapy, get into marriage counseling, be present in your community. It was a very long and difficult road of repentance and reconciliation, and it was going to take a while. But we told them, that's the road that leads to life. And over here is everything else, all other options, and they lead to death. The destruction of your marriage and your family, your claims to parenthood and leadership will all go up in smoke. And yes, the way of repentance seems more difficult now. It seems like I can't even do that. It's gonna cost so much. It's gonna tear me apart. It requires sacrifice and hardship. But that is the road that leads to life. So choose life. And we weren't threatening this person at all. It wasn't to scare them. It was to wake them up. There are consequences for the roads that we choose. And these roads ultimately arrive at destinations. So to embrace the life of apprenticeship, uh, a lifestyle of practice, discipline, self-denial, realizing the teachings of Jesus with various degrees of success and failure, to be sure, you will make mistakes all the way down that narrow road, and that's fine, but to walk the often treacherous narrow road. When you do that, you are being formed in the things of God. Meaning the more that you walk, the more that you learn to walk and you become a person who is freed from the tyranny of anger, a person who is set free from greed, a person who is set free from lust and worry, a person who is free to enjoy and trust in the Father's goodness. That person, as you can imagine, finds life. 
But on the other hand, the one who walks the comfortably wide lanes of the broad road, they act upon their own whims. They, what feels good, they do. Immediate satisfaction, comfort, sure looks better from the outset. Shallow enjoyment for a spell, for sure. But yet, what reason do they have not to submit to worry? or anxiety about their stuff, or what will happen tomorrow? What reason do they have to embrace compassion rather than hatred of their enemies, violence against those who hurt them, objectification of other people for sex, or greed and selfish hoarding, anxiety about the future? Both travelers are being formed as they walk the road. They're both becoming different people. One will be solidified in life, and the other in death. And for Jesus, it's actually that simple. And isn't it, isn't it funny then that Jesus doesn't say, hey, enter through this gate by recognizing that you are hopeless and helpless and you can only enter by faith, you know, by grace through faith alone, which is what we think he should say. But he actually gives his disciples a call to action. In fact, in Luke's gospel, heck, he even flat out says, quote, make every effort but listen, what you have to remember about that idea of a call to action and to make every effort is that Jesus is the gate. Again, this from scholar Scott McKnight. He writes, Jesus isn't here calling someone merely to be a better or to a better life. Rather, his own presence looms in the entire sermon as the one through whom God speaks, through whom God redeems, and through whom God reigns. So the inter-demand is a summons to Jesus, first and foremost. In other words, discipleship begins at the personal level of relationship to Jesus as the King and Lord who saves and rules. Connection to Jesus unleashes the grace of God's bounty. Jesus is the gate. He is the decision. He is the long line drawn in the sand, the, the no turning back, if you will. But the road is the endurance of the disciple. The road is the life of apprenticeship. It is the obstinate refusal to abandon the way, the persistence. Even in our stumbling and failing, we stand and we walk again and again. And get this, the verb tense in that final line of t tonight's text is actually more literally, quote, but, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few are finding it. Meaning, the walking of this road is made manifest day by day, decision by decision. And there's a bit of a paradox here because Jesus, just as Jesus emphasizes the many who die, elsewhere he emphasizes the many who live. So just as he here highlights the difficulty of the narrow road, elsewhere he promises that his yoke, his set of teachings, is easy and his burden is light. And here's what I think Jesus is getting at. To choose the smaller gate is more counterintuitive counter on appearances alone, and to walk the narrow road is more difficult in the short term, but together they produce what Jesus calls life and life to the fullest. In one of my uh, favorite films, it's this neo-noir murder mystery, two homicide detectives are debating whether or not it's healthy to continue to expose oneself to so much evil as one does in their line of work. And one detective admits that part of him understands what breeds the heinous things that they witness every day. And he says this, apathy is a solution. It's easier to lose yourself in drugs than it is to cope with life. It's easier to steal what you want than it is to earn it. It's easier to beat a child than it is to raise it. Love costs. It takes effort and work. The cost is the narrow road. 
But it isn't, a co- it isn't a cost that only rewards at the ultimate destination. It is the way of life as you walk the road. Think about it. To become a person who's free from worry and anxiety, is that not wonderfully appealing? Is that not wonderfully appealing? Yeah, that sounds incredible to me. To have absolutely no use for lust. To have your first inclination become rewired so that you go to compassion before you go to selfishness. Peace rather than violence. According to Jesus, these are things that are available to us now, not just in the age to come, though they will be, but in the here and now. Don't, don't you want that? Man, I, sh- I do, absolutely. The difficult road becomes the easy yoke. So before we end uh, end tonight, every single one of us is being posed a decision with only two available options, Jesus or not. So I want to say just a bit about what this means for you and what it means for the people in your life. First, I want us to confront the devastating realization that in the words of Jesus, many choose the path that leads to death. And listen, because this is a complex realization. On the one hand, We as the church often prefer to avoid Jesus' dichotomy of the many and the few. And with good reason, we want the church to learn the ways of evangelism, to share the story of Jesus with other people, to invite others into this way of life. We want everyone to come to faith. And this is a good thing, to be clear. In the Bible, who else wants everyone to be saved? There you go. Thanks, Cam. He's like, oh my gosh, he's going to quit if no one says God. Thanks. You saved. You saved. Uh, God does. In fact, look at this from 1 Timothy. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's hard to imagine a more explicit way of saying it. And yet we realize that since God has designed a cosmos that is free to choose or to reject him, many opt for the latter. Many choose the path that leads to death. In fact, many, I would argue, set down the path of life only to turn back and choose the easier road instead when they see what the narrow road looks like in the beginning. Um, I was telling Cameron this week that I was discouraged to learn about someone in our church who was once really giving this whole Jesus thing a shot, but then decided, you know what? I'd rather just do what I want to do. I'm tired of having a community of people hold me to a standard of life. So they left. And I told Cameron that I'd been studying this passage and I thought about sharing that story, but I wondered if it might be too personal. And Cameron, who, get this, is one of the most optimistic people I've ever met in my life. He replied by saying, dude, that's so many people. (laughs) So many people evaluate the options and simply select the easier road. Now listen, because that does not mean that we ever give up hope. On the contrary, we never cease to fight for people. We always persevere in hope against hope that everyone will find the way of life. In fact, the New Testament actually talks about this, especially when it comes to those who have begun down the road of life only to turn back. Look at this from James My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And good grief, man, we should be the last people to ever give up hope. We follow a king who was dead 
and then came back to life. We should be the last people in the entire world to ever give up hope, to ever forfeit or to to bow out to say, I guess death wins this one. But we are holding two truths in tension. The first being that God wants everyone in, explicitly. God wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So we do as well. We should be like God. We want everyone in. God brings dead things to life. God sets the captives free. God works miracles. God defies the odds. God chases, he pursues, he hopes, and he believes in people. And so we do as well. But the other, uglier truth, is that many find the road that leads to death. We are not defeated by this truth, but we have to confront it. We acknowledge it, and we grieve it when we face it. God does not force anyone down the narrow road against their will, and neither can we. But just like God, we invite, and we beckon, and we plead, and we walk together no matter who turns back. That's what I'm getting at. When others choose the broad path, or when they start down the narrow road only to turn back, we continue on. Jesus warned us that this would happen, so we will not let it defeat us. I think that this is perhaps one of the most crucial and pressing reminders for modern disciples of Jesus. You simply cannot afford to build a support for your faith from the supposed faith of other people because they can and will let you down. I worked uh, for many years in the Christian music industry and nowadays when and if I ever connect with old friends and acquaintances from those years who once followed Jesus, I just have learned to assume that they no longer follow Jesus from the outset and then be pleasantly surprised if they do. And this is not my pessimism, at least I don't think, but isn't that what we all say, us pessimists? Uh, I think it's really because of experience, believe it or not. It's because among the dozens and dozens of folks that I knew then, I can honestly count on one hand the folks that I know who still even claim Jesus, let alone, I don't know what they're doing with their life, but who purport to be disciples of Jesus. Most of them have outwardly and defiantly um, given up on Jesus, denounced the way of Jesus. I got an email earlier this week from someone who had become so discouraged to see all these like heroes of theirs turn from their faith, and I was like knee deep in this teaching, and I replied with this text. Wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few are finding it. We grieve this, we acknowledge it, but we will not let it defeat us. Our teacher warned us that this would be the case, and we will walk anyway. Now, to end... I want us to consider the implications of this passage on those of us who do follow Jesus. If you're thinking, man, I already chose Jesus. I already chose the small gate. Awesome. But here stands Jesus asking, will you choose me again and again and again? In your every decision, every plan, every career goal, every parenting decision, everything you eat and buy and say and do, will you choose Jesus, the small gate, his way of life, and go the narrow road. One can hardly exaggerate just how in all-encompassing this invitation to choose and to choose again truly is. Your entire journey of spiritual formation, of practicing the way of Jesus, is built from a near-infinite succession of decisions to walk the narrow road, 
that affect outcomes, which lead to more decisions to continue on that road. And yes, that sounds daunting for sure, but remember, when you choose Jesus, the narrow gate, you will not walk alone. It is a difficult road, yes, but it is not a lonely road. Martin Luther wrote about this saying, Christ himself and the whole heavenly host are at my side and have traveled this very same way, preceding me to heaven in a beautiful and long procession until the last day all Christendom will be traveling on the same road. It is a yoke and a burden for the flesh and it is called a hard way and a narrow gate. But just cling to me and I will make it nice for you, pleasant and easy, giving you enough strength to travel the road with ease. This week, uh, I had a couple of rough days navigating what, what feels to me a sort of shift for the worse in a close friendship. And one morning I was praying and telling God that I feel replaced and that it was a lonely thing to feel. And one thing I continue to wrestle with in my conversations with God, and just as a human being, like many humans, is the question of significance. You know, are we as special as we believe ourselves to be? And out of this disposition of loneliness, feeling replaced, I was praying and asking God, man, am I a fool to simply assume that I am so precious that at the end of it all, am I actually significant at all? And I felt God say, to me, yes. And I took this to mean, well, I can't speak for everyone else, but to me, yes. Some of you are probably walking the narrow road, and for you it has begun to feel not only narrow, but lonely. And, and listen, I get it, that makes perfect sense, it's totally valid to feel that way, but it isn't the truth. It just isn't. You do not walk alone, that's a lie and you don't have to linger in that illusion. When we finally get to the end of Matthew's gospel together as a church, if Jesus doesn't come back first, we'll see that Jesus' departing words to his disciples are the ever beautiful, haunting promise. I am with you always to the very end. The same teacher with this start teaching about the small gate and the narrow road promises his disciples that as they walk, he will be with them always. May we learn to walk with Jesus before us to the very end. Amen.